0: you grab your Bible, and uh, today we're going to look at Isaiah 9, Isaiah 9, a very familiar text when it comes to Christmas, this is one of those texts that we're we're considering looking at next year already as as a series, Um, already doing Advent planning for 2013, it's a sickness that I have, but this is one of those rich pieces, that just a description of the, the coming sun, and we're going to read uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Follow along with me, page uh, 573 in your pew Bible. Hear the word of the Lord from, from Isaiah. But there will be no gloom for her, for her who was in anguish. anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, and the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them has light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as a joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder and the rod of his oppressor you have broken as on the day of Midian. For the boot of the trampling warrior, tramping warrior in the, in the battle tumult, and the, every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called. Okay, I want to break into a chorus right now. Wonderful counselor mighty God, everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there shall be no end. And on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. So, we have probably all experienced this in one way or another. we probably experienced, out of the blue, receiving an unexpected gift from somebody. Have you ever had that? Where somebody maybe shows up at your house, or maybe it was at your workplace, and you receive a gift from somebody, and it is totally unexpected. You see them coming down your hallway, you see them coming up your your staircase. And you open the door, and you see in their hand a gift. And you're going, what in the world? Because everything in your head is going, I have nothing for them. It's an unexpected gift. And immediately, instead of enjoying the gift, what do you immediately do? You apologize, you feel bad, and in your head you're going, what do I have in the house I can give them? What can I... What can I later give to them? Because so much of it is an issue of pride. We, co- we try to give the- come up with some kind of gift that we can give them in return. Not out of gratitude, because after all, we didn't ask for this gift. And it's not really out of friendship, because after all, we don't either know this person very well or we hadn't thought about them. But for some reason, we feel like we have to give it to them because we feel guilty oh my gosh, this is so, and then you unwrap it and you go, oh my, how did you even know that I would like something like this? How did you, this is absolutely amazing. We don't want to have this feeling of indebtedness, like I I owe you this. The gift seems to somehow, in a strange way, lay claim upon us, especially since it was maybe somebody that we didn't know or know very well. It it has some kind of strange claim on us. It's uncomfortable. It's hard to look at the person in the face because we feel like we, we need to reciprocate in some way, but we have nothing to give back. But by giving us a gift, this person has some kind of strange power over us, and we hate it. It may well be, as Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. But it, I believe it is more difficult to receive, to truly receive, with nothing in return. Imagine a Christmas where you were the only one receiving all the gifts as a small child, they may enjoy that. I'm looking at my daughter going, oh, that's sweet, sweet. But as adults, there's this strange, I, I don't want to be that person that's receiving. I feel like I need to give something back. Watch even how some people react when they're given a compliment, especially in a public setting. If I would just pick somebody out this morning and just start complimenting them immediately. Yeah, Amanda's avoiding my eye contact already. There's this, this, you just feel flushed, and it's like, oh my gracious, I'm pitting out. How did that immediately happen? But we, there's something about this. Or, or if I just even remember early in my dating years where I, I was dating this young girl in high school, and she gave me this amazing sweater. Well, Then being a farm boy... We didn't receive very nice gifts, but she had gone all the way to Des Moines and got something from Merle Hay Mall and giving me this this gift, this amazing sweater. It's like, oh my word, this is amazing. And I remember bringing it home and showing my parents, and immediately their reaction was, you need to tell her to take this back. With this idea of that is way too kind, too extravagant of a gift, and somehow that gift is laying claim on you, and we're not sure that you're ready for that. And What do we do at this time, this season of year, this so-called season of giving? We enjoy thinking of ourselves as basically generous, benevolent, gift-giving people, don't we? And one of the reasons why everyone, even the, the nominally religious, loves Christmas is because it's, it's a time of giving. Christmas is a season to celebrate our alleged generosity. The newspaper keeps us posted of, of all the fami- families that might need help or amazing ways that we have given to people in this time of need. If you've even seen it for the Sandy Brook, there, the outpouring of love during this season especially is just rich. It's extravagant. You see the Salvation Army kettles that just enable us to be generous during as we are serving ourselves, right? They're there to get a nickel or a dime after we have spent hundreds of dollars on gifts or on groceries. People who usually balk, and I remember this as a teacher, people who will balk at the collection, the idea of collecting money for coffee, to pay for coffee, are now the people who are the most generous gift givers if there is a need in the community. We love Christmas and we say that Christmas brings out our best. Everyone gives at Christmas, even the most stingy of us, even the Ebenezer Scrooges. Charles Dickens' story of the Scrooges' transformation has probably done more to form our, our idea, our notion of what Christmas should, is to be like more than St. Luke's account of the manger. Whereas Luke tells us of God's gift to us, Dickens tells us how we can give to others. A Christmas carol is more warm and fuzzy to our idea of our favorite images of ourselves. And the Christmas account, St. Luke, and even here in Isaiah, tells more about God's idea of giving. So I suggest that we are far better givers and receivers. Not because we're generous people, but often because we're proud. But here we, we see ourselves in light of God's gift giving. Matthew and Luke and Micah go to great lengths to demonstrate for us that us with all of our power, our generosity, our competence, our capabilities had little to do, had nothing really to do with God's work in Jesus Christ. God wanted to do something for us so strange, so utterly beyond our human power of imagination, so foreign to us that God had to resort to angels, to pregnant virgins, and stars in the sky to get this done. We didn't think of it. We didn't approve of it. We didn't come up with a plan. All we could do in Bethlehem is to receive it, a gift from God that we could hold hardly even fathom so we have here in in isaiah a gift a promised gift that is going to be coming to us one that israel did not even conjure up they didn't come up it wasn't their imagination that that came up with this this amazing gift it was a gift that was given and there was nothing that they could ever do to fully reciprocate We've got to understand a little bit of context here. We see here, Isaiah is saying this, but there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, the land of Naphtali, but in the later time, he made glorious the way to the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee, the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of darkness on them, light shined. Just light shined on them. God came to his people first. And he came to them right where they hurt the most, where they suffered the most. From, the place, from that place, he launched salvation to the world. Isaiah uses this metaphor of darkness and, and light for oppression and liberation. Whenever foreign armies from the, came from the Fertile Crescent to invade Israel, the first area that came under, under attack was the Galilee of Nations in the north. The Galileans knew slavery. They knew despair. They knew that they were going to always be the first ones hit. But God turned invasion into mission by making the people of Galilee see first the light of Jesus. Jesus. It was in Galilee where Jesus was baptized, where Jesus started his ministry. They got to see for the first time the light that was promised. They deserved what happened to them. They deserved the oppression that was coming from from the the Assyrians. They deserved these things because they were unfaithful to God, but God was not satisfied with that. His zeal, verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. His zeal brought a savior brought a savior you see in in verse 3 you have multiplied the nation you have increased the joy and they will rejoice before you as in the joy of the harvest and and they are glad when they divide the spoil you know it's the the you here is god he is spreading the light out more and more and more and more And it's going to be this spreading of the light will create such a great multitude that that no one can number them. They'll be greater than any nation. They'll be coming from every tribe, every nation, every tongue, everyone. will be coming together, crying out with a loud voice according to Revelation 7. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And their joy is not meager. It's not a, a temporary joy. I, I just, as a parent, I love. There's something about Christmas. You know, you get out the large black garbage bags for all the trash. You know, you spend hours of wrapping presents, and the children. Christmas morning. Christmas morning is the time that we set apart. And there's nothing else going on. We're not going to grandpa and grandma's. We're not going to cousins, uncles, aunts. This is room family Christmas, and it's. Really honestly, the morning that I want to sleep in. We, I, I don't have to go to work. I don't have to do anything. But the children, they are up at the butt crack of dawn, just waiting. Just waiting. Dad, dad, can we go now? But we have the tradition. No, wait. We're going to have monkey bread first and enjoy monkey bread and the sticky ooziness of that. And then it's like, are, are we done now? Can we, can we do this now? Let's finish up our Advent calendar. It's horrible, you hear? But this anticipation. And finally, you get to the point where we're all gathered around. As a father, as a Christian man, as a pastor, I do the... Hey, what is this really all about? And you're just praying for the right answer because then you have to go back and do it all over again if they don't give you the right answer. Yes, this is a... This is a picture of Jesus and his gift to us. We do this not just because you deserve gifts, but it's a picture of what Jesus has done. Do you get this? Yes, yes, dad. And the paper flies. Right? Well, this is, their joy is meager. Even the joy of our children in opening gifts is meager compared to the deep joy that we should have. Isaac compares... Isaiah compares it to the, the, the joy of the workers at harvest, the huge bonus of a payday, and the gladness of soldiers who are dividing the spoiled, none of which they deserve. But there is great joy. It's almost like a locker room at, at a Super Bowl for the winning team where there's champagne just going every, just absolute raucous behavior going on. That is the kind of joy, the triumph of God's grace over the depressing failures is joy, unspeakable, and full of glory forever. And in Isaiah 4-7, through 7, Isaiah explains, the word for appears three times, but he explains this miraculous joys breaking into the world. Our liberator is fighting for us. In verse 4, it says, for the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Isaiah is thinking of some kind of a freedom fighter that is coming in. Somebody like Gideon. Gideon, who is breaking the power of our oppressors. And what, a unique, what is unique about this the salvation is this. You and I are not the subject of any of these verbs. True liberation comes from beyond us. Freedom does not come from what you and I can muster about ourselves. Or, man, if I would just do this or just do this, I can be free. This kind of liberation comes from beyond ourselves. Something that is not our own. It is coming from someone else. True liberation comes from beyond ourselves. And it says again in verse 7, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. God's zealous desire for glory will make this happen. But why is on the day of Midian? Don't want to just kind of fly over that. Why is on the day of Midian? Why does he say that? Because Gideon broke the power of the Midianite hordes. If you know nothing about uh, this story, I want to encourage you jump into judges six through eight. It is an amazing story of how God broke the back of the Midianites. God deliberately reduced the size of Gideon's army from thirty two thousand people down to three hundred this is this the valley was filled with Midianites, and these Midianites had the latest technology of their day and age and Israel was scared to death of these people and God came to Gideon and said "Uh, prepare for battle and he sent out word and 32,000 men came and Gideon felt quite confident this is a battle we can win and each step God said send that group home send that group home Send that group home. They drink wrong from the river. Send that group home. Send home the groups that are scared to fight. And ultimately, God's strategy was an audacious bluff with Gideon's men blowing trumpets and breaking jars and holding up torches in the night. But God threw the enemy into panic. They slaughtered their own people and Isaiah is looking ahead to the liberator even better than Gideon. There is one even better than Gideon. For every boot of the tramping soldier is in, in battle, tumult and every garment rolled up in blood shall be burned as fuel for the fire. Our liberator will not only defeat all the forces of evil, but he will put a final end to conflict itself. Done. Done. The Midianites will never come back. The sin, the struggles in your life will never come back in Jesus Christ. When he finally comes that last time, it's done. It's done. No more pain. No more sorrow. No more struggles with our vices, our needs, our wants. It will come to an end. Every mechanism for tyranny will go into the bonfire of God's grace. The passive voice that is used here that says, will be burned, whispers that this victory is not our accomplishment. We step into the battlefield after the victory is won. It's done. And all we can do is celebrate. But who is this all-powerful, this this new figure striding onto the world's stage? Through what amazing, magnificent person does the zeal of the Lord renew the world forever? Verse 6. For unto us a child. A child is, is born. To us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. God's answer, God's answer to everything that has ever terrorized you, that has ever terrorized me, that has ever held me captive, the answer to everything that has terrorized us and held us down is a child. A child. A son. The power of God is so far superior to Assyria's and all the big shots of the world that could, he can defeat them by the coming of a mere child, a baby. And his, his answer to the bullies that are just swaggering around in our lives and in our world today is not a big deal. And God does not say, well, I am going to prove to be a bigger bully than you. What does he do? His answer is saying, I'm going to win this battle with a child. A child. When we get close enough to the secret of of world peace to see it clearly, what do we discover? Against all of our expectations, we, we find weakness overwhelming power. And we see foolishness outfoxing wisdom Sometimes it is the craziest plans. It is the smallest troops that win the greatest battles. Everything else has failed. However improbable, the gospel must be true. God does not need our strength. He does not need our brains. Jesus crucified is the only Savior and King of the world. So look at Jesus. As the wonderful counselor... He has the best ideas and strategies. Let's follow him. As the mighty God, he defeats his enemies easily. Let's hide behind him. As the everlasting father, he loves us endlessly. Let's enjoy him. As the prince of peace, he reconciles us while we are still his enemies. And we need to welcome his rule and reign. For those of us who who have broken homes and broken families and just messed up lives, this provides hope. He is the wonderful counselor. He has the best strategies, the best laid plans for us. He is the mighty God. When we find that we are hopeless, and we can't seem to win, he defeats by his power. As the everlasting father, and we have messed up dads, some of us. Just messed up fathers. He is, he is the one who will love us endlessly. And I'm talking about rich, extravagant, beautiful, healthy, sustaining love. And he will bring us peace. This is the son that we've been waiting for. The one that has been promised. And he brings us hope. It is our greatest desire to experience that kind of a a hope. He is the king of the most unparalleled mercy and grace. Never has any kingdom been ruled by a government so mild, so gentle, and so gracious. He's exceedingly gracious in in the way that he rules his people. It's by sweetly and powerfully influencing our hearts by his grace, not by governing them against their wills. But powerfully inclining and wooing us to love Him. That's how a Father works, and that's His government. So how do we, how can we defeat the one who's able to seems to fly underneath the radar of all of our prejudices? And how how do we defeat the one who seems to be able to win our hearts? It's impossible. The history seems to go his way. And it says in verse 7, of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end on the thrones of David and over his kingdoms to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. There's nothing, there's nothing that is going to stand in the way of this child. Nothing. This child is a king to end all kings saving us from our Savior, lifting us up from into his own righteousness and his own justice. He is Jesus Christ, the Lord, our crucified, risen, reigning, and coming again Savior. And he is not coming back to just tweak a problem. He will return with a massive correction of all systemic evil forever systemic evil done and the best part of the increase of his government and the peace there will be no end the empire of grace will forever expand there will be no end don't read over that too quickly the increase of its government and peace this gracious peace and government there will be no end if we live by faith in him now, accepting his weakness as our strength and his folly as our wisdom, we will be there to enjoy his triumph forever ascending, forever enlarging, forever accelerating, forever intensifying. There will never be a one moment in our lives where we will say, wow, that's his limit. He can't think of anything new. He cannot outdo himself this time. Man, that was just absolutely amazing. There, there's no way that he can top that one. The finite, you and me, will experience ever more wonderfully the infinite. And every new moment will be better than the last. And the beauty of this, it's almost like an exclamation point at the end of this verse where it says, and the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this it's gonna happen if god is who god says he is he puts an exclamation point at the end and says the zeal for my name the zeal for my glory the zeal for my character all these things exclamation part point it's gonna happen i'm gonna make this happen and i'm going to do it through And this is often the way that God loves us. With gifts that we did not think that we needed. Which transform us into people that we don't think that we necessarily need to be. God surprises us with amazing gifts. The best of which is His Son even with all of our advanced degrees, our armies, our government programs, our material comforts, self-fulfillment techniques, we assume that religion is about giving a little. And it's about our power in order to conform to ourselves that we indeed are as self-sufficient as we claim. And then the stranger God seems to just come and break into our world and blesses us with a gift. calls us to see ourselves as we are. Empty-handed. Empty-handed recipients of a gracious God who would rather who rather than leaving us to our own devices and trying to figure it out on our own He gave us a baby. As I think about us leaving in a few minutes, I think about the impact of this. Does this, does this even resonate in us? Does this, do we understand that we have received empty-handedly, there's nothing that we could do, free gift? And that free gift is amazing. And it stirs in me just these names. I think for some of us this morning, we need to be reminded of these names. That he truly is our wonderful counselor. How quickly we run to one another first. Or we run to our, ourselves and crank out all of our answers. And we counsel ourselves or we seek out the counsel of someone else. And, and God is saying here. I am the wonderful counselor. On top of that, no matter what your problem might be this morning, and I know that everything you are inclined to do is to work it out for your own good. Jesus is saying, No, I'm the mighty God. It's time for you to say, Uncle, give up, receive. I am the the mighty God quit trying to be God I am mighty God everlasting father the description of this kind of a father is often in the Old Testament as one who has has wings that gathers in chicks that protects that cares for that nurtures that provides even a a picture of a loving God, an everlasting Father who disciplines. He disciplines those that He loves. And this is the type of Father that we are receiving in Jesus Christ. Those of you who come from broken homes or or think that you come from perfect homes, in light of this kind of God, in this kind of Father, your Father, your earthly Father, pales in comparison to the one that we receive in Jesus Christ. Maybe some of our greatest father issues or dad issues should be discovered in light of Christ and put aside in light of the greatest father that we've ever received. And he's the Prince of Peace, the one who ushers in true peace, eternal peace, lasting peace in our day to day and in our eternity. I don't know where God has you right now, where you are in your journey, but I pray that the ministry of this word that as we prepare for Christmas Day the coming of the Christ child, that your hearts are truly prepared to receive open-handedly the gift of Christ. Amen. Let's pray.